men. General George Armstrong Custer of the U.S. Cavalry pretended to be a friendly hearer and listener to the Indians. But the problem was he never really considered their pleas. He never really listened to them. He pretended to, but he didn't. The Sioux and the Cheyenne tribes came to view Custer as their bitter enemy. In fact, he was killed in the Battle of Little Bighorn. And when the Indian squaws found Custer's body, they took sharp awls and they pierced his ears. They put countless holes in his ears. They believed that those holes would help him listen better in the afterworld. And this little Indian myth reflects a biblical truth. Whether our ears have been pierced or not, we will all hear better in the afterlife. In heaven, the issues that we struggle to comprehend today, the doctrines that dumbfound us now, will be perfectly explained to us by God himself. And this is a truth that we need to remember when we approach Romans chapters 9 through 11. For the doctrines of predestination and free will are some thorny theology. They've been discussed and debated since the birth of the church. I'm sure complete comprehension won't be grasped this side of heaven. Here's where we need a little healthy realization of our own limitations. With Romans 9 through 11, a little humility goes a long way. Romans chapters 1 through 8 dealt with the principles in salvation. Romans chapters 12 through 16 discussed the practicals of salvation. But in between the principles and the practicals, Romans 9 through 11 delves into a problem with salvation. Romans 9 through 11 answer the question, now that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus has come to the Gentiles, what then is God's attitude toward the Jews? Now Romans 9 is some pretty heady stuff. It's a collection of Paul's most intellectual arguments. That's why it's interesting that he begins by revealing his heart. Verse 1, I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Paul is brokenhearted over the lostness of Israel. Unless you have immediate family who don't know Jesus, it's difficult to grasp the depth of Paul's grief. We share so much with our families. That's why our hearts ache to know that they're at odds with what's most vital to us. And this is how Paul felt toward his fellow Hebrews. He's about to say hard things to them. He first wants them to know how much he loves them. And the thought of his Jewish kin, his relatives burning in the flames of hell, grieves him greatly. In fact, he makes a mind-boggling statement in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren my countrymen, according to the flesh. Wow. Paul wishes he could be accursed for the sake of the Jews. You know, the Greek word translated accursed is the word anathema, and it couldn't be stronger. It means to deliver a soul to eternal damnation. Realize Paul is willing to go to hell if it meant that the Jews could go to heaven. Think of the Secret Service agents who are prepared to put their life on the line to protect the president. 
They're willing to take a bullet for their commander-in-chief. But that's nothing compared to Paul's sacrifice. He would be willing to forego not just life on earth, but eternal life in heaven if it meant he could bring salvation to the Jews. Once two men were discussing their respective churches, the first guy said, Hey, you guys just got a new pastor, didn't you? Why did you fire the old one? His buddy replied, Well, he spoke too much about hell. The first guy asked, Wow, what about the new pastor? What subject does he speak on? His buddy said, Well, he speaks on hell too. Well, the guy was confused. He said, Well, what's the difference if both men speak on hell? His friend explained, Well, when the old pastor told folks they were going to hell, it sounded like he was glad. But when the new pastor tells people they're going to hell, it sounds like it's breaking his heart. And this was the heart of the past of Pastor Paul. Paul was willing to go to hell if it meant the Jews could go to heaven. Which should cause us some serious consideration. If Paul was willing to go to hell for the people he loved, why won't we walk next door? Why won't we take a coworker to lunch? Or make a call to invite someone to come to church? Hey, we all should realize in the next 30 seconds, in the next 30 seconds, 39 people will die. Every hour, 5,000 people leave this world to meet their maker, and most of them step out into a Christless eternity. This realization should coax a tear from us, cause a prayer from us, motivate us to share our faith. It's been said to love a thing means wanting it to live. Paul's passion for the Jews was enhanced by their privileges. In a spiritual sense, they had it made. Who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Paul recalls the amazing benefits given to the Jews, the greatest of which was Jesus himself. Jesus was born a Jew. You know, there's an old saying, you don't get to pick your relatives. That is, unless you're God. And of all the nations, God chose the Jews to be his relatives. In so many ways, the Hebrews had been God's partner in salvation And yet, tragically, we're told in John chapter 1, verse 11, Jesus came to his own, and his own did not receive him. This was a blown opportunity of mega proportions. For two millenniums, the Jews had occupied a special place in God's plan. That's why Paul's readers were so puzzled as to why they weren't saved. You know, I would have answered their question by insisting that the Jews had a choice, and they chose to reject Jesus. But Paul surprises us with a different rationale. What happened to the Jews was the result of God's choice. Verse 6. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And here's Paul's first point. The Jews trusted in their bloodline to save them. But that was never enough to make them righteous. A real relationship with God is not the result of bloodline, but of belief. In God's estimation, not everyone with Jewish blood was a true Jew, that is, a true child of God. 
Verse 7, nor are they all children because they are of the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are of the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise, at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Now remember, Abraham had two sons. Biologically, Ishmael was his firstborn son. But spiritually speaking, God never recognized Ishmael. In Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God told Abraham, Take now your son, notice, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. God called Isaac Abraham's only son. See, God's people were never just about bloodline. Pedigree was never enough. And this shocked the Jews. They figured that since they were the heirs of Abraham, they were automatically accepted by God, but not so. The other trait that Israel trusted in was their behavior. To a Jew, salvation was something due. It was a paycheck that you earn through doing good deeds. This is the error that Paul tackles next in verse 10. And not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Rebekah had twin sons, two boys, Jacob and Esau. And before either of them had done a thing, had attended church or given an offering or fed a poor person, before they did their first good deed, God chose Jacob over Esau. In fact, later in life, Jacob swindles Esau. He proves to be the more diabolical of the two. And yet God chose Jacob over his brother Esau. Paul's point is that the choice God made had nothing to do with their performance. It was predetermined beforehand. The boy's place in God's family was a matter of election or of God's choice. In fact, verse 13 quotes Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now understand, this is a figure of speech. It's called hyperbole or exaggeration. God loves everyone. God actually loved Esau. He loved both boys. But the language implies that his plans for Jacob made his plans for Esau look like hate. So in comparison, Jacob I love, Esau I've hated. Here's the point Paul's reaching. Prior to either child, even sliding down the birth canal, canal, or before they had lifted a hand to prove or disprove their worthiness, God elected Jacob and he rejected Esau as his chosen. God's choices are based on neither bloodline or on behavior. And here's where it gets even stickier. Ultimately, neither are God's choices based on belief. For God chose Jacob over Esau in utero, before the boys could work or have faith. As Paul says in verse 11, it was done so that the purpose of God, according to election, might stand. In a sense, it's God's choice, not man's. 
that decides our eternal destiny. God saves whom he chooses, and he condemns whom he chooses. And after hearing that, you'll relate to verse 14. For Paul asks the question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? This doesn't seem fair, does it? We should be the captain of our own fate. Is God some kind of tyrant? And Paul's answer is, certainly not. Now, especially in the United States, Americans value equal opportunity. Everyone should be free to make their own choices. Of course, we get this concept from the Bible. One of the ways we were made in God's image was we were given the authority to choose our own destiny. The theologians say that man is a free moral agent. But think about this. We're quick to defend our right to choose. But what about God's right to choose? Doesn't God get a choice? You're happy that you get a choice. But doesn't God get a choice? Isn't salvation His to give in the first place? Why shouldn't God have the right and freedom to give that salvation to whomever He pleases? He's God. Well, verse 15 stresses this point. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. In other words, it's up to God as to who receives his mercy. I'm afraid that because God made salvation so simple and so accessible, we assume it's our right. We forget that after 6,000 years of human history, of sordid human history, in fact, God would be perfectly just to throw us all into hell and to start over. You know, to me, it's not surprising that God hated Esau. What's surprising is that he loved Jacob or that he loves any of us. It's astonishing that God loves you or me for that matter. You know, I once worked for a boss who on occasion allowed us to leave an hour early on Fridays, and he would pay us for the full day. But you know, it's funny, after a while, we started expecting to leave early every Friday. And whenever we had to work the full day, we'd all start sucking sour grapes. Oh, this isn't fair. (laughs) We lost appreciation for our boss's benevolence. We misinterpreted the boss's mercy as our right. Don't say it's not fair for God to save some folks and not save others. God doesn't owe salvation to anyone. We all deserve the flames of hell. The only reason any of us are forgiven is because God chooses to give us a gift that we seriously don't deserve. We're all glad that God has given us a choice, so why begrudge Him His choice? Verse 17, For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Paul points to the Pharaoh of the Exodus as an example of a person that God chose to reject. God hardened Yul Brynner's heart. You remember this story. He hardened the Pharaoh's heart so that he could bring him down and in doing so demonstrate his own power. Verse 19, you shall say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? 
And Paul anticipates here a natural question. It's logical based on what he's on the path that he's going here. How is it fair for God to harden a man's heart and then hold that man accountable for his hardness? Of course, we gain insight into this by going back to the Old Testament passage. Exodus chapter 8, verse 32 tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Understand, God's sovereignty didn't override Pharaoh's compliant and obedient heart. God stiffened a heart that was already committed to his own stubbornness. And this is the argument that I would have emphasized if I were writing this passage. If I was writing Romans chapter 9, here I would try to balance out God's election with man's responsibility. Yes, God hardens hearts, but only after the person hardens their own heart. But that's not the argument that Paul musters. For he keeps beating the drum of God's sovereignty. Verse 20. But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay? From the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor. Paul is clear here. The clay has no say. I mean, what right does the clay have to tell the potter what he can and cannot do? The clay has no authority. The potter has complete mastery over the clay, just like God has complete mastery over us. Paul writes, What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Now notice Paul isn't speaking dogmatically here. He's using a what-if argument. Paul isn't saying this is how it actually works. He's speaking hypothetically. What if God created the world's lost Gentiles as whipping boys? They were just created for the sole purpose of God showing off his wrath by sending them to hell. What if? Then he chose the Jews for the sole purpose of revealing his mercy and transporting them to heaven. As Paul puts it, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of mercy prepared for glory. What if God made made some for glory and some for destruction? Paul doesn't say that's what God did, but he says, what if? Of course, even if that is how God drew it up, so be it. He has that right, does he not? God can populate heaven and hell however he chooses. And finite men are not in a position to question or criticize an infinite God. What if God took you, you, a lump of clay, and turned you into an elegant set of china that he's cherished for generations? Or what if he took you, a lump of wet clay, and made you a target for a skeet shooting competition. In other words, you were made for the sole purpose of just getting blown to smithereens just for the fun of it. What if? Either way, it's up to God, is it not? We're just the clay. We have no right to question the purpose of our Creator. See, here's the problem. Some of us refuse to let God be God. There's a scene from the movie Rudy 
where Rudy wonders if he's prayed enough to get into Notre Dame. And his priest tells him, son, in 35 years of religious studies, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I am not him. See, God does as he pleases. He answers to no one, including you and me. And we won't fully appreciate God's salvation until we first acknowledge God's ultimate sovereignty. Granted, such dominance would be scary for a lump of clay if it were not for our potter's skillful hands. And when it comes to the hands of our potter, we see in them his sacrificial scars. We know that his hands move at the impulse of a heart that beats in love, in love for us, enough to die for us, in fact. We are more than just clay to our potter. God purchased us with the blood of his only son. That means we're valuable to him. And if God paid that much for us, he's not going to waste our lives. Whatever his plan is for my life, it's a good one. God loves us. Our highest good is found in the center of his will. So what does the Bible actually teach? Does it advocate God's predestination? That my eternal destiny is decided by God before I'm even born? Or does it teach man's free will that every human has the responsibility to accept or reject Jesus? Well, I believe that the Bible teaches both the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. God did choose me before the foundations of the world, Paul says to the Ephesians. But it's also up to me to choose God. See, in Romans 9, Paul pounds away at this issue of predestination. But in the very next chapter, Romans chapter 10, verse 13, this is what he writes. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That implies the choice is ours. The reason I believe both seemingly contradictory doctrines is because the Bible teaches them both. And it makes no attempt at reconciling the mystery. It's like me holding up a quarter between us and asking you to describe what you see. You'll say, well, I see George Washington. It's George Washington's head on that quarter. Then if you ask me what I see, I'll say, well, I see an eagle with its wings spread. Though the descriptions seem irreconcilable, the truth is we're looking at the same object, are we not? Just from different angles. And this is the case with salvation. God commands us to choose. From our perspective, it's all up to us. Our salvation depends on our free will. But once we choose, we realize that before the world began, God chose us and predestined us to be saved. Once a man commented on the doctrine of election, he said, Long ago I settled this issue. If God didn't choose me before I was born, I'm sure he wouldn't have seen anything in me to choose afterwards. Someone suggested that when we get to heaven, when we enter the gates of heaven, we'll see engraved on the gate as we approach it, whosoever will may come. But after we enter the gate, we'll turn back around and we'll see written on the inside of that gate, chosen before the foundation of the world. I'll never forget coming home from work one day and finding a jar on the floor in our kitchen with a lid lying nearby. The label read, warning biological material, teratogenic and mutagenic agents present. 
And I panicked. I thought, oh no, what if those boys drug in from the woods this time? They've brought a poisonous canister into my house. We're contaminated. But Kathy calmed my fears rather quickly. The jar with the ominous lid turned out to be the thermos that went with Nick's Jurassic Park lunchbox. (laughs) The point is, things are not always as they seem, are they? Picture two ropes hanging out of the ceiling. Two ropes hanging out of the ceiling. One goes up, the other one comes down. The arrangement looks unrelated. Both ropes look like they're moving in opposite directions. But what if we popped a few of the ceiling tiles and discovered that the two ropes were actually one rope strung over a pulley above the tiles? See, I think this is what we find when we get to heaven. We assume that our free will and God's sovereignty were at odds with each other. In reality, they were working hand in hand. There's no contradiction at all. A higher logic, known only to God, is at work reconciling the truths of our salvation. We should take heart. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9 tell us, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Never is that more appropriate than we talk about Romans chapter 9. I like the quote I once heard, Try to explain the doctrine of election, and you'll lose your mind. But try to explain it away, and you may lose your soul. See, I believe the Bible teaches two what seems to be irreconcilable doctrines. And it does it for a reason. It's a reminder to haughty human beings like me and you that we don't know more than God, especially when it comes to our salvation. Reconciliation with God is His work, not ours. See, here is the first rule of theology. Never put a question mark where God has placed a period. God doesn't owe us an explanation. You've heard the expression, inquiring minds want to know, but at some point, Inquiring minds need to bow. Salvation is all about faith. Well, the question Paul's readers were asking was about the apparent change in the status of the Jews. They'd always been the heirs of salvation, but now they weren't the ones getting saved. Gentiles were coming to Christ. And as a result, some people were accusing God of being an Indian giver. If God promised salvation to the Jews and they weren't saved then how then could the Gentiles be confident of God's promise? And to answer their question, Paul brings up several Old Testament passages that predicted this flip-flop in advance. Salvation to Gentiles and judgment to Jews. He begins by quoting Hosea 2, verse 23. And he says also in Hosea, I will call them by my people who were not my people, and her beloved who was not my beloved. Now, you remember Hosea's bizarre story. God told the prophet to marry a prostitute. Hosea's marriage was a symbol of God's relationship with Israel. Israel had been the unfaithful bride and had chased after idols. Hosea and the hooker named their third child Lo-Ami, which means not my people. It was prophetic of Israel's plight. God would withdraw from Israel, their favored nation status. 
In essence, the Hebrew nation was placed on suspension, and God signed a new player to fill the roster spot, the Gentiles. He says, I will call them my people who were not my people. God adopted the Gentiles. And it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Now this was important. God called the Gentiles, he included the Gentiles into his family. But did that mean that he was through with the Jew? Not hardly. No way, Hosea. One day, the Jews in Israel will embrace Jesus as Messiah in the same place they rejected him. Verse 27, Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. And here he quotes Isaiah 10, verses 22 and 23. Though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. This short work is a reference to the seven years of great tribulation that will happen at the end of the age. Revelation tells us that God will pour out plagues and ravish the planet. It'll have to be a short work since the cataclysms are going to destroy the ecosystems that we currently support our planet. But God will pour out his judgments upon the earth for two reasons. First, to punish the wicked and second, to purify the Jews. That's why Isaiah calls the Jewish survivors of the great tribulation the remnant. They're the ones who will be saved, those who survive to the end. And Isaiah said before, and here he quotes Isaiah 9, actually Isaiah 1 verse 9 and Isaiah 13 verse 19, unless the Lord of Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. In other words, God refuses to wipe out the Jews. Yes, he'll judge them for a season, but in the end, all Israel, all Israel at the time will be saved. Now, what should we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. What an irony this is. Take a football game. The quarterback throws a pass downfield that bounces off the hands of his intended receiver and it gets caught by a virtual bystander who then takes it in for the winning score. This is the story of our salvation. The Jews were the intended target. The Gentiles were just jogging down the field. The Jews were the ones who reached for the ball, but the Gentiles who were in the right place at the right time caught the carom with nothing but faith. And then scored. And yet that brings up a question. If God is a perfect passer, why didn't the Jews make the catch? Verse 32. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. The Jews tried to earn what could only be received by faith. Gentiles had nothing of merit. They knew they were undeserving. All they had was faith, but that's all they needed. The Jews missed salvation because they wanted to buy it with their own goodness and good works. The Gentiles just bumped into it by faith. Chapter 9 ends, For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. And here Paul quotes Psalm 118. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. 
And whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. This is a famous Messianic psalm. Here in Psalm 118, the psalmist prophesies that the Jews will stumble over Messiah. Rather than see Jesus as the way, they'll see him as in the way. He didn't fit their Messianic stereotypes. He was a rock in their shoe rather than the rock on which they would lean. They weren't willing to come to him by faith. And that's why they missed it. Chapter 10. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Understand at the time, the Jewish people were the most religious people on the planet. Yet Paul, one of their own, declares that the Jews weren't even saved. That would have been a shock to the Jews who read this. I mean, that would be like me saying that the Pope isn't saved. I've been to the Vatican there in Rome. It's a bastion of religion. Round-the-clock liturgies are read. Prayers are said. Candles and incense burn like a forest fire. Whether the Pope is actually saved is between him and God. But the point Paul makes of the Jews is also true of the Pope. Religion alone doesn't equal salvation. You can be the most religious person on the planet, It doesn't mean you're saved and right with God. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. The Jews were religious. Jerusalem is the only city on earth where riots erupt in the streets for violations of a holy day. That's being religious. Walk into an ultra-Orthodox Jewish neighborhood dressed immodestly, and the residents will want to stone you. That's religion. The problem with the Jews isn't a lack of zeal, but a lack of knowledge. Paul says they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. In other words, they want to please God, but they go about it the wrong way. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. See, if you want to get to God's heaven, you've got to follow God's directions. Doesn't that make sense? And the path is not self-righteousness, but it's receiving God's righteousness by faith. Verse 4, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does those things shall live by them. Understand, the law required a flawless routine. One slip up on the law and you were breaking the whole enchilada. Here's the problem with living under the law. You can keep some of the commandments some of the time, or you can keep some of the commandments all of the time, but no one can keep all of the commandments all of the time. That's the problem. Remember the old Smith Barney commercials? We make money the old-fashioned way. We earn it. This was the Jews' way of obtaining righteousness. They wanted to earn it, but they couldn't keep it in totality, and thus they broke it. Verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. You know, again, Americans believe that hard work and determination are omnipotent. And they may get you places on earth, but they won't get you anywhere with God. 
Don't think you can coax God down from heaven with your good deeds, Paul says. Nor think that you can conjure God up with your mystical techniques. We've all met supposedly spiritual people who wear crystals and chant their mantras. They have all sorts of little metaphysical feelers out looking for God. I have a friend who wasn't content with Christianity. He had to go deeper, always deeper, always looking for something deeper. He followed that path into the next weird spiritual novelty. And the last time that I spoke to him, he was into Jewish mysticism, into the the Kabbalah. I wrote him the following note. The deepest thought I've ever heard is, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You want to go deep, that's deep. Paul is saying that just that connecting with God isn't the result of earning divine favor or learning a divine formula. God has made it so much simpler. And here it is, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. God is as near to you as the tip of your tongue. Salvation is not a reward to which you aspire. It's not a secret that you try to acquire. It's a free gift you simply desire. All you have to do is ask. It's on the tip of your tongue. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation salvation isn't building some kind of portfolio of goodness, nor is it wielding mystical powers. It's simply yielding control of my life to Jesus. It's not flexing my muscle or straining my brain. It's bending my knee and pledging my allegiance to Jesus. That's how a person gets saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Real faith starts in the heart, but it comes out of the mouth. Faith includes an inner pledge and an outer witness. For verse 11 reads, For the Scripture says, Whoever believes on Him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord over all is rich to all, who call upon him. In other words, everyone gets saved the exact same way, by faith. Verse 13, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here's my question for you. Have you called on the name of the Lord? It's simple, but that doesn't mean everybody does it. You've got to bow your knee and ask. The emphasis in chapter 9 was God's sovereignty in salvation. It's up to Him. But here in chapter 10, what are we discovering? It's up to us. Notice again, in back-to-back chapters, the Bible teaches both perspectives as it does throughout. Sometimes people come and they hear me teach in Romans chapter 9. They think, oh my, you believe in predestination. I say, sure. Then they come back the next week and they hear me teach in Romans chapter 9. 10, and they say, oh, you believe in man's free will? And the answer is sure. I believe in both because the Bible teaches both. Well, how do you reconcile them? I don't. I don't reconcile them, nor does the Bible. It's amazing how these two doctrines, though irreconcilable in theory, work out so well in practice. Say someone complains to me, 
Hey, this isn't fair, Pastor Sandy. God didn't choose me. Well, I'll reply, how do you know? He'll probably say, well, I'm not a Christian. To which I'll respond, why aren't you a Christian? The Bible says, whosoever will may come. He'll likely fire back, well, I'm not sure I want to come. And my reply, hold in, maybe you're not chosen. You see, 2 Peter 3 verse 9 tells us, The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Don't blame your unwillingness on God. Henry Ward Beecher used to say, The elect are the whosoever will, and the non-elect are the whosoever won't. I believe God revealed to us the doctrine of election to provide us a comfort, not a cop-out. Well, the first half of Romans 10 spoke of the simplicity of our salvation. Now the second half speaks of the seriousness of evangelism. You see, God has made salvation simple, attainable, available. Now it's our job to spread the good news. And Paul makes this point with a string of four rhetorical questions beginning in verse 14. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? You see, before truth can be believed, it first has to be received. But to be received, it has to be delivered. And to be delivered, there has to be a deliverer. And this is why a silent witness is not enough. You can't say, well, people, they don't like to be preached at, so I'll just let my life speak for, my, for itself. Well, it's vital to live an attractive life, I agree. But unless at some point you offer a verbal explanation, how will they know what really makes you tick? See, lost people need a preacher, and you're it. It's been said too many Christians are like the Arctic River, frozen over at the mouth. Don't let that be said of you. Recall Romans chapter 2. It taught us that we're all judged, we'll all be judged one day by the light we receive. Well, that being true, you might think, why take the gospel to the pygmy and risk his rejection? Hey, he's not accountable for what he doesn't know, so just don't tell him. Ignorance is bliss. But see, here's the problem with that thinking. Nobody faithfully lives up to the truth they've been shown or the light they've received. Has that pygmy ever violated his conscience or done an evil deed? I'm sure he has. The man needs to be saved. And the only means God has provided is the gospel. Even if God were willing to save a repentant, trusting pagan, how many repentant pagans are there? I doubt if there are any. When that pygmy invites you over for dinner, he's not necessarily being nice to you. You might be on the menu. Ignorance is not bliss. See, everybody needs forgiveness and transformation. And God has made that available in one place. That's in Christ Jesus. Well, Paul says in verse 15, As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. You know, on occasion, someone will compliment me on my dashingly handsome features. They'll remark about my muscular physique or my movie star eyes, or they'll admire my chin, my prolific chin, even both my chins. But no one has ever commented on my feet. Only God praises our feet. See, feet are God's favorite human feature, especially when He sees a pair of them carrying the gospel. He sees them as objects of beauty. You know, all husbands admire their wives, and Jesus is no exception. The bridegroom looks at his bride, the church, 
and thinks she's beautiful. But what grabs his attention isn't her hair or her face or her figure. It's the feet that carry the gospel. Verse 16, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. You know, there are all kinds of shortcuts to spiritual growth. Emotionally charged meetings and soul-stirring music and attention-grabbing gimmicks and spine-tingling experiences. But you know, shortcuts always lead to dead ends. Jeremiah spoke to this issue in his prophecy, chapter 23, verse 28. The prophet who has a dream, let him tell a dream. And he who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. For what is the chaff to the wheat, says the Lord? Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? There are no substitutes for God's word. The Bible, compared to man's gimmicks, is the wheat to the chaff. D.L. Moody spent years praying for God to increase his faith, but his prayers were all in vain. Until one day, he read this verse, Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by God's word. Moody says he got up from his knees, opened his Bible, and started reading, and his faith has been growing ever since. Well, verse 18 tells us, but I say, have they not heard? Yes, indeed. Their sound has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the earth. But I say, did Israel not know? First Moses says, I will provoke you to jealousy. By those who are not a nation, I will move you to anger by a foolish nation. And next week, we'll talk more about this, the subject of jealousy evangelism. See, God intended to bless the Gentiles in Christ to make the Jews jealous and to turn them back to Him. But Isaiah, in chapter 65, verses 1 and 2, is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. Remember, the Gentiles caught that ball off the carom. They weren't the intended target, but through faith they embraced salvation. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. All day long, God has stretched out his hands to Israel. The Jews had rejected God, but it was his desire to bring them back. Through, their constant, through God's constant pleadings, God called them, but they turned their backs on him. And so, is God through with the Jews? Well, we'll answer that question in Romans chapter 11.